Well, after our Missions Emphasis Week last Sunday, today we pick back up in our series through the book of Exodus, and we're in chapter 24. If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to Exodus 24. If you don't have one, we'll put most of the texts up on the screens in just a bit. But as you're turning there, if you have a Bible, uh, let me take just a minute to resituate ourselves within this story we call Exodus. The book of Exodus divides roughly into thirds, three main parts. We can think of three D words for headings, words beginning with the letter D. The first third of Exodus is about God delivering. God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh and draws them to himself, brings them to himself. He delivered them, as you remember, from through the ten plagues and, and through that Passover night and through the Red Sea where the whole Egyptian army was destroyed. That's the first 17 or 18 chapters. And then God leads them to Mount Sinai after that for a second phase of the story, which we could call God declares. He declares, he speaks, he reveals And we've been seeing that in recent weeks with the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 and then the rules or the application of the Ten Commandments in these situational ethics that follow the Ten Commandments in chapters 21 to 23. And God will eventually be, will actually be continuing to speak to Moses on Mount Sinai over a total of 40 days stretching all the way to chapter 31 of Exodus. And it's then that we come to the third section of Exodus, which we could call God dwells. He dwells. In chapters 33 and following, the Israelites leave Sinai, and there will be all kinds of drama, ups and downs along the way as they travel by foot in the wilderness. But the big idea is God dwelling with his people, and the complications and the glories of God dwelling with a sinful, covenanted people. Well, that's the big picture. God delivers, God declares, God dwells with his people. Exodus 24 sits in that second section of God declaring. But in Exodus 24, we don't have any instructions like we do before Exodus 24, and like we'll have After Exodus 24, the various instructions are paused in chapter 24 while the covenant is confirmed. That's what this is about, a covenant confirmed. You can think of it in terms of what a wedding day means for a marriage. If Exodus 20 to 23, the few chapters before our text for today, if they establish the expectations for marriage, and if Exodus 25 to 31, those after our passage for today, if those prepare us for what we could say is moving in and settling down for a good long while, well, Exodus 24 is the wedding day. It's the ceremony. We have the rehearsing of vows, a worship service, and even a feast. Of course, it's not literally a wedding. That's just my metaphor to help us think through the importance of this covenant confirmation in chapter 24. So with that in mind, let's read the chapter together. 
Then he said to Moses, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, which the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain. And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the, Lord, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and 40 nights. I want us to investigate and apply this chapter this morning under four headings. The first is a call to come up. In verses 1 to 2, we have a call to come up, at least for some people to come up. The people are still not to come up the mountain, just as they weren't in chapter 19 when they arrived at Mount Sinai and God began to descend upon it. The people couldn't even touch the mountain or they would die. Only Moses could go up the mountain to meet with God to receive the law. Well, now in chapter 24, others besides just Moses are called up the mountain. We've got Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. Those three will be, uh, they will make up a priesthood in just a, a few short chapters. And then we have the 70 elders of Israel, who may be a, a formalized version of the judges that were appointed back in chapter 18. So this group of 74 leaders are to come up the mountain, 
Some of them only partially, though, halfway up to worship from afar, it says in verse 1. And then Moses is the one who will go all the way up on the mountain to truly meet with God, as we've already read. Now here, just like with chapter 19, we have all the same lessons. We see that God, in his mercy, is drawing near to his people, but because he is a God of unapproachable holiness and glory, he does not abide sin. Sinners cannot waltz into his presence willy-nilly. And yet, in his mercy, God allows Moses, though imperfect, to enter into his presence as a kind of mediator, a go-between between God and his people. And that mediation now is beginning to expand a bit among the leaders, beyond just Moses. In fact, scholars have noted that we have three different proximities to God in this chapter. You've got the people not on the mountain. You've got 73 guys who are basically halfway up the mountain. And then at the end, you've got Moses atop the mountain with God. Well, that's something like the pattern of what we find in the tabernacle and later the temple. You've got three categories of proximity to God's presence. The holy of holies in the middle where God dwells and that's where the ark would go. And then outside of that is the holy place. Sort of a a halfway point into the presence of God. And then outside that is the outer court. Well, directions and specifications for this tent, this tabernacle of God, are about to be introduced. In fact, it's chapter 25 and following. We'll see it next week. But that's what's foreshadowed here in verses 1 and 2. And get this, what that means then is that the call for some to come up the mountain of God is good news for all the people. You see, God has a plan to draw near to his people, and it's unfolding bit by bit. The plan for now in our chapter involves this moment on the mountain between God and Israel's leaders. It's a plan that soon will involve a whole sacrificial system with priests taking part in a tabernacle, and again, later in a temple in Solomon's day. And it's a plan that over a millennium after the days of Exodus includes the the final, perfect, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest, bringing a perfect priesthood and garnering complete Access to God for all who receive that sacrifice by faith. So one of the ways that we as Christians approach a passage like Exodus 24 is with similarity and contrast. There's similarity between then and them and us now. And there's also contrast. And the contrast is that the call to come up 
into God's presence is not limited to one. It is not limited to 74. It is open to any and all who will come through faith. Because Christ has gone up with sacrifice all the way to heaven itself, he now can bring us all the way in. Hebrews 10 says this. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Well, that is very different than Exodus 24. Praise God. More has happened since Exodus 24 in the plan of God. And therefore, when we read Exodus as Christians, we must keep taking it through the cross and resurrection to today and to ourselves. Not drawing straight lines of mere moral lessons like God said, come up, they obeyed. That's good, you should obey. Well, you should obey. And yes, there is example in the Old Testament, which 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. That's one of the ways we use the Old Testament. It warns, it instructs, it gives us example. But that's not the only way. It's not even the most central way or most important way. We must see what the Bible does with this theme and trace it all the way through the cross and resurrection. And we'll do that a number of times today. We'll see a kind of connection between Exodus 24 and the book of Hebrews, for example, many times, not just today, but in weeks ahead as well. But I wanted to establish that connection early on. Secondly, back to Exodus 24, we have a significant ceremony after this. In verses 3 through 8, we have an interlude. If verses 1 to 2 are calling the leaders up on the mountain, well, it's verse 9 that they actually start going up the mountain. And between that, we have a ceremony held with God and the people. And this is the covenant confirmation. This is where the covenant that's been talked about is ratified. The covenant, what we call the Mosaic covenant or the covenant at Sinai or what the New Testament calls the old covenant because by then there is a new covenant. That covenant was first introduced in Exodus 19 where God said through Moses to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exactly how they were to be a holy nation and exactly what they were to obey is then spelled out in the next few chapters, chapter 20 to 23. And that's exactly what Moses reads to the people in chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. The words are the Ten Commandments, which are actually introduced to us with that word words in chapter 20, verse 1. And then the rules are those many 
different situational and societal applications of the Ten Commandments in chapters 21 to 23, which not surprisingly, these are introduced with that word rules in chapter 21, verse 1. These together make up what we call the Book of the Covenant. And that's what Moses reads now a second time in this covenant confirmation ceremony. Verse 7, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. He read Exodus 20 to 23 twice. And after reading each time, the people responded unanimously and heartedly, heartily, Like verse 3, all the people answered with one voice and said, All that the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And take it up a notch in verse 7, after the second reading, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. These are kind of the I do's of the ceremony. These are the vows. Have you ever noticed in, in a wedding with traditional vows, there are actually two sets of vows that are made. There are the I do vows. Do you take this woman to be your wife, to have and to hold? And the man says, I do. But then there are the repeat after me vows, usually connected to the ring. With this ring, with this ring, I pledge my life and my love to you. I pledge my life and my love to you. And the cynic might say, well, why are there two sets of vows? Didn't you mean it the first time? Well, don't ever say that, uh, especially if I'm doing your wedding and we come to that second set of vows. It'd be a bad time to wonder why we would repeat things or do a second set. But it's purposeful, as you know. It implies being doubly sure and doubly committed And that's what Moses is making sure of with these people. He reads the covenant, and they say, we will. He reads the same thing again, and they say, we really will. Now, there are a couple of ways in which this covenant ceremony is unlike a wedding between a husband and wife. For one, with God and his people in this covenant ceremony... We're not talking about two equal parties coming together who are both saying the same thing and making the same kind of commitments. Keep in mind, God has initiated this. God promises. God has saved. And now God commands and God has drawn up the terms of the covenant. The people assent. And they must assent. They they must agree to the terms. But both parties are not under the same terms or equal participants. Another way in which Exodus 24 is not like a, a wedding is that we have this whole thing of an altar and offerings, sacrifices, and blood, which hopefully you didn't try to incorporate into your wedding. I mean, just look down at it again, verses 4 and following. Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars for 12 tribes. He sent young men of the people who offered burnt offerings and sacrificial peace, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood, he threw it on the altar. Skip to verse 8. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. 
and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What is going on here? What does this mean? What does it represent? Well, in ancient Near East cultures, not just the Jewish one, but the others as well, there was really no covenant apart from blood. Just like in some cultures, there's no deal unless there's a handshake. Or in our culture, there's, there's really no deal unless signatures have been put on paper. Well, this blood was integral to all covenant making in ancient Near East. But what did it signify? Well, the sacrifice in blood and covenant making terms can sometimes signify this is what will happen to me if I break covenant. It can signify the stakes involved and the consequences for breaking the covenant. That may be in view here, but I'm more confident of another possibility that with an altar and with blood thrown on the people and with the whole priestly sacrificial system about to dawn in the book of Exodus, I think this is about atonement. Atonement, a biblical word, which is the, the ceremonial and symbolic covering of sin. You see, there's no covenant in Exodus 24 without atonement. Israel's hearty affirmation and their pledge of obedience to the Lord, it wasn't enough. They wouldn't live up to their words. We know. We get a foreshadow of it when we're told in verse 14 that the people have been left in charge with Aaron. That's not going to go well. You can read Exodus 32 if you can't wait the suspense or don't know what happens, but it doesn't go well. The people bring not only their past sins into the covenant, but there will be future sins under this covenant. They need sacrifice. They need covering. So, so picture the gruesome and weird scene, at least weird to us. The altar signifies God's part in this, and blood is applied to the altar, meaning that God is propitiated. He's covered. And then the other half of the blood is thrown onto the people, signifying their covering over sin. And now with that, all the necessary ingredients of the covenant are in place, and Moses can make the pronouncement in verse 8, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Now, there are a number of ways that our passage, even just thus far, works its way to the New Testament and develops and swells and grows with significance along the way. Let me start with the most obvious way in which we get to the New Testament from Exodus 24. It's actually a passage that comments on the very scene we've just been working through. In Hebrews 9, listen to this, verse 18, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, not even the first covenant, that's our covenant, was inaugurated without blood. 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, that's what we've seen in Exodus 24, he then took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Now I know Exodus 24 doesn't mention that he sprinkled the book. We'll let the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit get a pass. Apparently he knows something we don't know and that's fine. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood with he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's the principle shared between old covenant and new. In the Old Covenant, verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, like that altar or later the tabernacle. No, those are copies of the true things But Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the writer of Hebrews says, the covenant has been confirmed. The new and better covenant has been confirmed. Sacrifice has been made. Blood has been applied. Things are settled. Christ has entered into God's presence and leads the way for all who would believe and follow behind him. The covenant has been confirmed. We know that because Jesus instituted a meal around it. In fact, he paraphrased words taken right out of Exodus 24. In verse 8, Moses said, Behold the blood of the covenant. Well, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, in Matthew 26, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. He adds the word my, not the blood, my blood. More specific now. Not any blood, my blood. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Another way we move from Exodus 24 to the New Testament is with this word sprinkling. Now, sprinkling isn't just in Exodus 24, it's elsewhere, but but it is in Exodus 24, and it's also a favorite word of the New Testament writers for Jesus' blood applied to those who believe. So Hebrews 10, I've already read verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, now verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see, similarity in contrast. Sprinkling language in Old Testament and New, but in the New, it's not a sprinkling on the outside one day in front of an altar at the base of Mount Sinai, but our very hearts sprinkled clean, even down to our consciences. What a difference. And do you see the application that the writer of Hebrews wants us to draw from all this? So in case you wondered, what's Exodus 24 mean for us today? The writer of Hebrews tells you, 
Christian, if you have Christ's blood sprinkled on your heart, draw near to God in worship with full assurance, holding nothing back, no reservations because the way has been made, the blood has been covered. Draw near, draw near with sprinkled hearts, clear consciences, and full assurance of faith. Back to Exodus 24, and we see thirdly, an astounding encounter. An astounding encounter. Uh, the 74 leaders were invited up, verse 1 and 2, and now verse 9 and following, they go up, and there they have an astounding encounter with God. Verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. Now let that sink in. Think about that critically and, and theologically. And if it sounds shocking to you that they saw God, well then you're on the right track. Because God will say later on in Exodus 33 when Moses asks to see God's glory, no man can see my glory and live. The Apostle Paul can say in 1 Timothy 6 that God dwells in unapproachable light and no man has seen him, no man can see him. Well, even without the New Testament material, the, the writer of Exodus suspects that we would scratch our heads about this comment that they saw God. In verse 11, he clarifies, he did not lay his hand on them. That is, God did not lay his hand on them. That is, they didn't die. That is, they experienced something of seeing God and weren't destroyed by it. The writer of Exodus doesn't explain why or how in this instance seeing God wasn't deadly, except perhaps that it was a limited sight of God. Notice that the only description of this encounter is about the ground. Verse 10, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. You see, the ground is transformed by the presence of God into a clear sapphire blue stone. And what's described is the ground and its appearance, not even the feet. Phil Riken, in his commentary on Exodus, he asks, why doesn't the Bible say more here about what God looked like? Maybe because the elders never looked much higher than the bottom of God's feet. They seem to have become almost, they seem to have become most intimately acquainted with the floor, which suggests that they fell on their face to worship. They took one look at God and immediately lowered their gaze. So surely they didn't see the full glory of God as if they could. But they saw something of God. And they saw its glorious effect. They saw his glorious effects on the surroundings. And don't, don't think that any minimizing of what they saw of God would, should reduce in our minds how spectacular and special and unparalleled up to this point their encounter was. These divine human 
encounters are actually not that common in the Bible. We'll see one in Exodus 33. We could think of Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 where he saw something of the glory of the Lord in the temple. We could think of Ezekiel 1 and the vision he has there, which I'd encourage you to go read this afternoon because it's a, it's a longer version of the one sentence we have here describing the encounter with God on the mountain. Ezekiel 1 unpacks God's glory with words like like and likeness and appearance of and something like and as it were, it's describing the indescribable God just as Exodus 24 does, albeit so briefly. But it gets more intriguing when we read on. Look at the second half of verse 11. They beheld God, and what would you think is next? And ate and drank? What juxtaposition is this? I mean, this is crazy. They beheld God, passed the bread. What? What's going on here? Well, the meal here signifies acceptance with God, communion with God, relationship with God. This is the final step of the covenant confirmation process. This is what flows out of the covenant being ratified. What happens after a wedding? The reception. You eat. What happens when the heads of two companies finalize a merger? Well, maybe they go out to a nice restaurant to celebrate if both people in the, in the group are happy about what's happened. Meals are all over the Bible. Meals with God are, are not that infrequent and they're really big and special. We think of Jesus eating with sinners. In fellowship with them. They were sinners who believed on him and were saved, and he took them in. What do we have in the New Testament, but also a covenant meal, which we call the Lord's Supper? Again, it's a meal which signifies that the covenant has been ratified. It has been confirmed. What will we have in the end of time but a meal with God if we're in Christ? Jesus said in Matthew 8, people are going to come from the east and the west to dine in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what we have in Revelation 19 with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's where all this is going. Meals with God eventually end up in a new heaven and a new earth, a marriage, a celebration, a beautiful wedding between God and his people. But here in Exodus 24, we're seeing something of the foreshadow of it, and it's significant. There had not been anything like it up to this point. And what's more is that Moses even gets more from God, more of God. Verses 15 and following, he leaves the rest and heads up the mountain that's covered in clouds. For six days he's there. On the seventh day, God calls him up even into the midst of the cloud. And we're told the appearance of it all. Well, it's the glory of the Lord it was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. This is what Moses entered into. 
Who knows what that means? Who knows what that was like? I don't know how you draw it, but Moses saw God. Moses was an unparalleled character in the Old Testament. He got more face time with God than anyone else. He talked with God as a man talks with a friend, we're elsewhere told. And yet, this, even this, is but a foreshadow of what comes later in Christ. A foreshadow, a shadow. Like, think of the difference between a shadow and the substance. So as I look down, I can see my hand on this carpet. Well, it's not my hand. It's the shadow right there. This is my hand. The whole Old Testament was this shadow of Christ, and then Christ comes and he's the substance. The shadow was glorious. It was impressive. Exodus 24 is one of those fantastic shadows of the Old Testament. But Christ is the substance. The shadow says someone's coming. Light is reflecting on someone. And then they appear. So John 1, in his gospel, he can say, no one's ever seen God But the only God, referring to Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Or a few verses before, he said, the word, that's Jesus, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or Paul can talk about Christian growth in terms like this. We are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So in the Bible, as we behold Christ, we are beholding him directly through words and one day face to face. So First John can say one day we will see him as he is and we will be like him. We're not there yet, but... But we have the word, and as we behold Christ, now we are changed from one degree of glory to another. Now, when Christ appears, it won't be good news for everyone. For those who believe in him, who call upon his name and are saved, then his return will be glorious. Again, we will see him as he is, and we will be made like him. Perfect. But for those who are not in Christ, for those who will not believe on his name, for those who have never had their eyes open to see that he is glorious and he is God's salvation, well, his appearing is nothing but trouble. It will, at the end, either be doom or delight, not degrees in between. Not not something you work your way towards if you put in enough years No, it's one or two eternal destinies. And I pray that today you would know that because Christ has sprinkled blood in heaven on your account and that he has made a way to heaven itself for you, you believe on that today, I pray you would and be saved. Well, lastly, there is an essential codification back in Exodus 24. A codification. You see, we've worked through our text from top to bottom already, but there's a theme that I want to pull out, which runs all the way through. 
It's an essential codification of God's word. God's word is referred to four times in Exodus 24. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Verse 7, he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people again. And then, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I've written for their instruction. The point is, God has revealed himself and his plans and purposes for us. He's revealed that in his word. Not merely in oral tradition, though that sufficed for a time. But here we're beginning to see the very first writings of the Bible in the Bible. God codified his word. He put it in a fixed, objective, literally black and white text for us to see. And you might say, who cares about that? I want to get in that cloud. If I could see what's in that cloud, if I could see the feet in the sapphire pavement, maybe I'd believe. Well, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. Plenty of people saw glorious things like Pharaoh and didn't believe. Many people saw Jesus do miracles and yet would not believe. Besides, we have something better in the written word. Peter can talk about this. That the experience of seeing the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, when Jesus communed with Moses and Elijah on a mountain, and Peter was there, and he saw it with his own eyes, he later testified, we have a more sure word than the experience I saw with my eyes. We have it written down in the Bible. These are words we can return to. These are words we can hear and rehear and reread and reread. And this word is, well, it's necessary. There's an old theological term for scripturology. You think of different parts of scripture and different ways in which it works. And the old guys used to speak of scripture being necessary. I love Kevin DeYoung's little book, Taking God at His Word, and I'm so thankful he has a chapter on God's Word is necessary. What, what does that mean? It means it's necessary for obedience. We wouldn't know what he wants of us if he didn't say, if he didn't show us. The Word of God is necessary for covenant. He's the one that marks out the promises and the parameters the word of God is necessary for our salvation. God has spoken in creation, but no one looks at a tree and gets saved. He must speak with more clarity than his general goodness or power, and he has in the word. The word of God is necessary for our assurance, like Hebrews keeps insisting. Because the blood is sprinkled you can enter in. And so the word of God is necessary for our worship. 
in this covenant confirmation ceremony of Exodus 24, that's essentially what we have, a worship service. Scholars have suggested that this could be the Bible's first corporate worship service meeting. And indeed, we have a call, a call to come up, a hearing of God's word, an affirmation in response. The whole thing is an encounter with God. There's even a covenant meal. It's all built on covenant, yes, but it's all shaped by and filled with God's word. And this is what worship is. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word worship as others use it. What what comes to mind? People might talk these days of, oh, that church has great worship. And by that they mean good singers up on stage, a talented band, and perhaps some lights that move around. Not long ago, I I met someone who told me that he and his wife, before they were married, they hit it off because they're both really into P&W. I said, what's P&W? Praise and worship. Ah. I didn't need to ask if he was talking about sermons. I knew he was not a sermon kind of guy. But what is worship according to Exodus? In Exodus 3.12, God says, you shall serve me on this mountain, referring to Mount Sinai. That's coming later, right? And we should note that the word behind serve here can be translated worship, as it is in the New American Standard. The reason the ESV translates it serve is to show that a transfer takes place in the story of Exodus. They were serving Pharaoh, now they'll serve God. So you can see how that's used from beginning to end. The transfer takes place. The word serve is a good translation to show us that transfer that takes place. But, but, but not if we miss the fact that it's worship. That's what they're doing on the mountain. They're worshiping God. And on the mountain from chapters 19 to 32, God speaks, God reveals, God declares. And so what is worship according to Exodus 24? Well, it is the hearing of and responding to God's word on account of covenant, by his blood, in his presence. Now, I'm not... I'm not digging, I'm not downplaying singing when we sing together as a church. I love our singing as a church. I love singing specifically with this church. I love the songs we sing. I love how our church has grown in its, well, its vocalness, its, its volume of singing and in active participation. I, I love Drew's thoughtful leadership of our singing And I also love that Drew is not one of those music ministers who thinks that the first part of the service is what we call worship, and then there's this other thing where a preacher gets up and he does his thing, and who knows what that is. No, it's all worship. That's the point. And it's all built on the Word, and it's all filled with the Word. And that's why we start our meetings every Sunday with reading God's Word. There is a song we have before that, We call it the pre-song. It's just to get you in. It's so you can hear it out there and you can be sort of duped into thinking the service is starting. (laughs) Come on, come on. 
Quit fellowshipping out there. Come on in. Come on. So that song, there's the pre-song, yes. But that aside, Drew then says, let's stand and let's hear from God's word. I know 80% of you weren't in here this morning because I looked around. So I'm not scolding you, but I am inviting you and I am imploring you to partake of God's summons to his worship. He speaks, we respond. Now, if you missed that call to worship from scripture, it's not like you've blown the whole service by any means, but you would miss out on this opportunity to just sort of set the tone for things. We don't start with our speaking, he starts with his. He speaks, we respond. Scripture and then song. And besides, many of our songs are scripture themselves. Worship is the hearing and responding to God's word on account of a covenant through blood in God's presence. That's what's happening in Exodus 24. It's what happens in the new covenant. It's what happens here every Sunday morning. And so let us take that application from Hebrews 10 to heart and run with it today on account of sprinkled blood, on account of him paving the way to heaven itself for any and all. Let us draw near to God in worship. Let us leave aside our guilt. Let us not dare think that we're going to have to clean ourselves up. We're going to have to have at least a few good days of devotions before God wants to hear from us or wants us to sing boldly on a Sunday morning. Leave that aside, says the writer of Hebrews. Come boldly, full assurance of faith. Hearts are sprinkled clean in the ways been paved by Christ himself, the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. Enter in and keep entering in every Sunday and really every day, every moment. This is what Christ has bought for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are our rock and we stand on you today. You are our rock and we Lord, we lean into the cleft of your rock where there is safety, where there is shelter. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being a great high priest, a perfect sacrifice, a shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. We thank you for salvation and access to God in you. We pray in your name. Amen.